0: to cover much more ground and many more topics than I will be able to do. At last podcast, I told you that I will discuss God's gender, the concept of the Spirit of God near Eastern parallels, and how our approach of what it. Tells not what it says will help to raise the border between literal and non-literal interpretation of scripture. Unfortunately, as I started preparing, I realized that I can with difficulty only fit two of these topics into our available time. And therefore I will only speak today about God's gender. Is God masculine? and about Near Eastern Parallels to the creation story. Uh, We will have to leave the other super fascinating topics for another edition of Bits and Ends in the beginning. So let's talk first about, is God masculine? It is no secret that while the ineffable, non-pronounceable name of God, Yud-Heh-Vov-Heh, Uh, clearly has something to do with being. Uh, It could be read as he who will be, he who is, and he who had been. It also is always accompanied by masculine verbs and prepositions. At the same time, it is clear God is not masculine in the sense that humans are divided into males and females, and that He is immeasurably elevated above the field of human endeavors. So, how should you explain that? It has become popular, both among Christians and Jews, to issue revised editions of the Bible and of various prayer books that take out the masculinity, the implied maleness of God. And I understand the impulse, but before we do that, we should try to understand why is God represented as a male. For Christians, perhaps, it is a little bit easier to understand that, and for Jews, harder. But I think both have philosophical and logical uh, difficulties with this concept. So before we do that, I'd like to discuss that impulse. Uh, Why do we, in our time and place, uh, try to reduce God's apparent masculinity and revise our understanding of him as being an entity without a gender? And to this end, I recently came across a new book by Rabbi Mark Samet, the Reform rabbi, um, who wrote a book about the name of God, in which he argues that there was a known secret. Must have escaped me, but there was a secret that you can read the Yud Hey Vov Hey name of God backwards, which for Hebrew readers will be from left to right. If you do that, you come out with who, which if you disregard the absence of an aleph, could be read as he, and he, which disregarding again the aleph, could be read as she, so it'd be he, she. Um, I did not read, I have to confess the entire book, but about 40 pages where Uh, available at the Barnes and Nobles book site and there was also an article with excerpts in realclearreligion.org. I found the book engaging in terms of retelling uh, well-known historical facts but very very thin on substantiation. Uh, The author frequently invokes Kabbalistic secrets. But uh, I have spent significant time studying this discipline and I've never seen that you ever read words from left to right. In Hebrew, you read from right to left. In fact, I think it would be unimaginable for many of our ancestors to read it from left to right. It's just something that you don't do. And whenever Kabbalah wishes to get to the to see the back of things, what they call Achoraim, the back of things, uh, they do it in a different way. It has to do with spelling each letter and then taking the numerical value of the lesser way to spell it and comparing it to the numerical value of the greater way to spell it. Uh, Different spellings have somewhat different letters which have different numerical values and that's how you do it. I've never come across reading left to right but i do understand the impulse the impulse comes from us living in a non-hierarchical society us living in a culture that rapidly is careening to the concept of equality overall there are no hires and lowers there are no leaders and followers there are no better and worse everyone is equal There is no difference in ability, value, history. And therefore, everyone must be given exactly the same opportunity, whether they can, by their own independent efforts, support it or not. Okay, so we understand that. But uh, what about God being masculine? So before I get into that, I'd like to talk a little bit about hierarchical and flat societies. Now, I must say that flat societies have always failed. Uh, whenever there was a society that was without distinctions between people, distinctions quickly emerged. Or as George Orwell said, all people are equal, but some people are more equal than others. What does that mean? That means that when equality is the measurement of value, some people end up more equal and they have more of this value than others. The communist societies illustrate this perfectly. What might be the value of hierarchical structures in society that we should truly consider before rejecting them? Well, first of all, there are implied values about the structure of the world Uh, and for religion it certainly has great value because God is on top of everything it allows for priests and commoners it allows for those who know more and those who know less those who must consult others and those who must provide support and advice and um the the diminution of hierarchical structures has led to a great deal of weakening of religion as well. There's one thing that we must realize, and this I read in some paper many years ago. Unfortunately, I have not been able to locate this paper, but the author argued that hierarchical societies create true equality. How is that? Well, imagine if you're a medieval burgher. You live in a city, you belong to a guild. Within the guild you're equal. You elect a leader, uh, and uh, the leader (coughs) governs in a flat way with the consent of all the governed. So far, so good. But you're also responsible to the leader of your society, to the mayor of your town, to your priest, and they in turn pay homage to the duke or a noble in whose province this uh, town falls. Below you are your apprentices, your workers, perhaps your serfs or slaves, and your household. Now, your wife is in theory subservient to you. There is a hierarchy. but your wife is in a similar structure. She looks up to the master of the house, the male, the burger, and she has below her the children, the household servants, and perhaps other relatives to whom she is a mother so each one of them has the same experience they are equal in the sense that they both look up and they look down now what are the consequences of that this is not about pure power such structures impose obligations as well my obligation as a householder is to protect and take care and defend those who are lower than me not even to talk about the wife, but any attack or injury or or assault on my children will call forth a forceful defensive response. At the same time, should anyone threaten me, I will go to my guild leader or to my Duke and I can ask my priest for support. And he, in turn, may lobby someone above me. The structures don't have to be corresponding one-to-one. One. There could be some complexity to them. So, therefore, this structure imposes a sense of duty and obligation, as well as it guarantees a relative security. Now, what happens if my wife is not happy with her treatment by, by her husband? Well, she can go to the priest, who will talk to the husband. She can directly approach the duke, who will call the husband in and try to protect the wife. In structures which have a strong legal background, there will be a court to which she can take her complaints or claims this features inculcate a sense of responsibility towards those below you and a sense of reverence towards those above you but the point is that everyone except the very highest king and the very lowest slave and yes those are problems um everyone looks up to those above them and looks down with the benevolent eye, and those below them. How different is that from the societies we face, where men fight about smallest things, where only the law uh, remains as the vehicle of protection, a thin reed indeed, and where multiple injustices also occur, most importantly, when no one thinks that they're responsible to another uh, in any way. And where men are like fish in the sea, the larger one swallowing the lower one while professing no advantage. Is a hierarchical structure worse than our flat societies? You decide. Now, I would mention also that there is a recent book By Bell, that um, uh, talks about uh, hierarchical societies and hierarchical organization and argues that it is advantageous in many ways. It is called The Case for Hierarchy, published by Princeton Press by Daniel A. Bell and Wang Pei. The second writer probably provides an insight in Chinese society. And uh, the subtitle of the book is Why Social Hierarchies Matter in China and the Rest of the World. I'll read you a little bit of the introduction. Imagine a country with no social hierarchies. Let's call it equality. People in equality treat each other as equals regardless of age, sex, ethnicity, religion, family background, class, or position in the workplace. There is no clear distinction between the rulers and the ruled. Equality treats all other countries as equals in the global stage, regardless of their size, wealth, or military power. The people of equality regard animals as equal. Even intelligent machines are respected as equals. Equality sounds like an ideal society, but it's a dangerous idea. And he goes on to, or the authors go on to make the argument and compare it to uh, China. China, of course, in its Cultural Revolution, made an effort to stamp out social hierarchies, leading to mass violence and populist tyranny. In the United States, the populist backlashes against elites empower strongmen such as Donald Trump with scant regard and respect for traditional constraints and political power. The effort to combat all forms of hierarchy will not only fail, but may lead to something even worse from a moral point of view. So, there is ample ground to reverse the moral argument and to claim that equality is not supreme because it leads to poor outcomes. You can claim that the nature of a human being and human ways of organizing ourselves as choose uh, flat forms of organization. And it is fairly clear, at least to me, that the notions of responsibility and benevolence are, are absent in an equality based society. We need to only look back a few generations to see how aristocracy, with all its failing, uh, served to protect the poor and the weak. That was a noble family cause that generation after generations would see um, them and their their parents uh, practice. Uh, Of course, there were many failures and the French Revolution did not happen for nothing. But Think of families like the Rockefellers who were animated by the concepts of public good, the amounts of money they have donated and given and charitable causes that they have uh, engaged or started. Compare that to the oligarchs of the modern flat times. And I think the difference becomes apparent. But now let's, after this tangent, let's go back to the question: Is God masculine? Yes, he seems to be described that way. I will share two answers that I came across uh, to help frame the questions. The first one is uh, from C.S. Lewis. Uh, it's in his science fiction trilogy that he is strength and um, I will read the chapter, I'm sorry, I will read the paragraph to you which is uh, interesting in itself. I have to say before starting that I'm impressed in how C.S. Lewis either intuited Kabbalistic ideas or access them. So here is the quote. No, said the director, there is no escape. If it were a virginal rejection of the male, he would allow it. Such souls can bypass the male and go on to meet something far more masculine higher up to which they must make a yet deeper surrender. (laughs) But your trouble has been what old Poets call down we call it pride. You are offended by the masculine itself, the loud, eruptive, possessive thing, the gold lion, the bearded bull, which breaks through hedges and scatters the little kingdoms of your primness as the dwarfs scattered the carefully made bed. The male, you could have escaped, for it exists only on the biological level. But the masculine, none of us can escape. What is above and beyond all things is so masculine that we're all feminine in relation to it. What he's saying is that in the relationship with God, we are all females. Because he is the one who created the world. He is the one who reaches out to us. He is the power and the force and the strength which uh, makes the world go round, to put it simply. And um, Therefore, he's talked about as being masculine. Interesting idea. In many ways, an inspiring idea. Dennis Prager, the well-known commentator and pundit, it may surprise you, has been teaching the Pentateuch for decades. Recently, he put out his commentary on Genesis, which is called Genesis, God, Creation, and Destruction. And in it, he offers three very practical takes on this question. In general, this is a very practical book. It doesn't get deeply into theology, philosophy, or uh, interpretation. It's not an exegetical work. It aims to apply common insights common problems so there he offers three reasons for why God is represented as feminine the first one is that neuter or feminine is not practical his example is that let's say when you say I saw a fly I killed it Okay, we understand that what if he says i killed him so in that case you will wonder why he's using uh inapt language but you will understand that the gender of the fly is not in question but if he says i saw a fly and i killed her you will be drawn away from the total meaning of the phrase into the consideration of the fly's gender it certainly works in english it may not be that way in languages that are more, much more gendered. But what it points out is that he and male ver- verbs are general. They include female. Like in English, when we have a group of males and females, we can say they about them. Uh, in English, it doesn't matter. But in most other languages, the masculine day forms would be used, and they don't mean anything about gender. They, they default, they fall back. So the same way, to precisely avoid the genderness of God, we must use the male form, and not the female form. So this is just, in other words, a function of language. He offers another answer, which is that Quote, boys take rules from men. When males are young, they need to feel accountable to a male authority figure. Without a father or some other male rule giver, young men are likely to do great harm. If there's no male authority figure to give a growing boy rules, it is very difficult to control his wilder impulses. He quotes, The U.S. Senator Barack Obama in 2008, who says that children who grow up without a father are five times more likely to live in poverty and commit crimes, nine times more likely to drop out of schools and 20 times more likely to end in prison. He goes on to amplify this and says that the data is overwhelming. A report released by the Minnesota Psychological Association concluded the more opportunities a child has to interact with his or her biological or adoptive father, the less likely he or she is to commit a crime or have contact with the juvenile justice system. In a study of female inmates, more half came from a father absent home. Youth, who have never had a father living with them, have the highest incarceration rates. Youth in father-only households display no difference in the rate of incarceration from that of children coming from two-parent households. So in other words, he points out that if your goal is a good world, a world with less murder, child abuse, theft, rape, and torture, a God depicted in masculine terms, a father in heaven, not a goddess, a mother in heaven, must be the source of moral and ethical commandments. Such as do not murder, do not steal. To transform a wild boy into a good man, a male role model is as necessary as a male rule giver. So going back to what it tells, not what it says, a God that is perceived as male, perceived not in essence, who gives rules, and that is one of the primary objectives of the Torah is to give a law uh, are much more motivating and influential. And he goes on to ma- mention the idea that uh, women who push for disgendering of God might be the first victims of a society in which fatherless boys are not bound and influence to live in a rule-based world. It would be much more violent and a much less rule-oriented world. Law and order is not possible without fathers. Certainly, religion suffers in a world without father. Enough said about that. Now, I would like to discuss the Code of Hammurabi and from that segue into the Near Eastern creation stories. I'll start with the Code of Hammurabi to point out a method that evolved in terms of comparative religion. Uh, of dealing with such parallels. Code of Hammurabi has many many laws that would appear to be similar to the laws presented in Exodus, including some similarities in language. But when you look closer, there are also crucial differences. laws of Hammurabi are more punitive. They make distinctions between classes and by income. They are less well developed and compassion is not a value. This is very different from the laws of Exodus. Uh, The question where I first saw uh, the approach that I would now propose was discussed in the Orthodox forum series, which now has I think, 26 or or more books dealing with various uh, issues uh, in Jewish life. And it was devoted to modern interpretations of the Torah. An article by Barry Eichler, and this article, I believe, has been very influential, uh, inspiring many um, elaborations, uh, argued that The usage of terminology similar to that of Hammurabi was intentional precisely to point out how different this divine given law is, how much it is based on compassion and responsibility, and how little it serves means of social control. Uh, if you look at the specific example side by side, it becomes quite apparent that this is a correct approach. Uh, the approach uh, has been amplified and interpreted and reinterpreted. A recent book called Anima Amin, I Believe, in English, from Professor Joshua Berman of Baralan University, um, skillfully uses the entire Near Eastern background uh, for us to understand the revolutionary nature of the Bible, that it came to upend and change. And in order to do that, it would use similar language and similar stories and similar cultural assumptions to then turn them completely around and twist them toward a new and different and a more elevated goal. I want to discuss how that might apply to a um, famous problem of eye for an eye. Uh, the Bible says that you should take an eye for an eye. Uh, that is a very unacceptable idea to us in modern times. <clears throat> Neither is it, is it the traditional Jewish interpretation Jewish interpretation is you should take a value of an eye. If someone put out an eye of another person, they must pay the value of that. The problem is it's not all that clear in the Bible. It says an eye for an eye, or does it? Well, in fact, it doesn't. It doesn't. Um, I'm going to put away various logical explanations, first offered by uh, Saadia Gaon in... uh, 10th century, I was at 9th, I think, and uh, they are such as well, what if somebody puts out their eyes over three, ten thousand people? Would it be just to only take out his eye alone? What if uh, someone put out an eye of a man with one eye who is now rendered totally blind? Would it be justice to take? out one eye of the perpetrator and so forth and so forth. These are all powerful arguments, but what I'd like to offer is a text-based argument. So first of all, I'd bring up that in Numbers 35 and Leviticus 24, 18, it appears that we're talking about compensation. That's simple meaning. It says one who strikes the body of an animal should pay an eye for an eye, Okay, compensation, very clear. But there is another thing that I want to suggest. And that is the use of a crucial word. Uh, the Hebrew expression is ayin, ay, we'll talk about what that means, ay, ayin. Ayin, tahas, ayin. Ayin. So many years ago when I uh, salvaged uh, some old books from an apartment of an unfortunate man who was a scholar, but whose children didn't care much for Judaism, I met uh, the child after the Father's Day, and he said, I'm going to throw all the books out anyway, maybe there's something you want. I said, oh sure, books I want. So uh, one of the things I inherited from there was an old copy of something called Otzer-Lashon-Anculus, a treasury of the language of Anculus. Anculus was a translator with a very popular Aramaic translation of uh, Pentateuch. He was, according to uh, Jewish legend in Tractate Gitin, a nephew of Vespasian, or there is another source of Titus, and um, he converted, and he wrote this commentary here. He also surprised probably the individual by the name of Achilles, who wrote a Greek translation, much, much of which has been lost. So, in this concordancia, which is what this is, of, of language of Ankylis, the author, Yoshua Kosman, uh, I believe, uh, offers a discussion in his introduction to the word tahhas. Remember, ein, tachas ein. An I for something, an I. He points out that this translation translates the word tachas in two different ways. Sometimes it translates it as techos. very similar to tachos. These are very cognate languages, Hebrew and Aramaic. But in this expression, I for an eye, it says, Eina halav Eina. I, an I in exchange for an eye. And uh, when you drill down to this, uh, he shows many examples where the translation is varied. What he's pointing out is that dual meaning of the word tahas. And that really it can and often does, frequently does, means instead of not for. Therefore, a translation of I for an I is a mistranslation, and the correct understanding of the verse is an I instead of an I. The reason I bring this up is to point out the danger of superficial reading, and also the danger of translations. Look at the thousands of years of vilification of calumny that this verse has produced, and look how simply it is Explained when you are aware of different languages and use this to understand the simple meaning of the verse. Now, why did I go into all this? To discuss two parallels to the Near Eastern legends. The subject is well discussed in Kasuto, particularly. Uh, in he is from Adam to Noah, which is available in English translation, a bit pricey, but a, a wonderful work. On page eight and nine and pages 37, 39, he discusses one of the parallels, which is the Babylonian mythologies of the struggle of the gods. I guess you could say the war of the Titans. Uh, <coughs> excuse me in and around the creation of the world. He points out that allusions that created story that are related to the story in Genesis could be found in the Bible. He quotes Isaiah 30, 12, 21 to 22. I'm sorry, 40, 12, 21 to 22. Um which uh, is not particularly compelling. But this verse in Job 38, seven is quite compelling. I'll read the translation of it. Uh, By the way, Casuta wrote in Italian, and uh, we have some partial translations of his work. It's almost worth to study Italian to be able to have access to his complete corpus. But this is what it says in Job. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? We'll talk about the line upon it and the light and the relation of the two when we speak about the meaning of the word or. Light. Or what were its basis sunk? And what were its bases or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. He says that there's an indication here of a different creation tradition. That's interesting. Why? How? Well, it seems that creation took place in the morning. That's what he says. Uh, that's what's stated in the job. When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Um... As he says, there is a clear indication here of a tradition concerning the creation of the earth on a bright morning. Um, the story of Rahab, the prince of the sea, who rose up in revolt against God, and at the end of God subdued him and slew him, in uh, Babylonian creation stories, is also mentioned. Uh, in the Bible. He relates it to, to the uh, Genesis verse 121 about the that God created two huge serpents. And so on. There is a lot of valuable material in Kasuta. So that would be source number one. I would point out that Kasuta himself after discussing this, does not accept that uh, Near Eastern parallels had any influence uh, on uh, the story of Genesis. Of course, if you believe it's God-given, it would not have a uh, an influence. But uh, he also argues that the prophets of Israel would uh, never borrowed terms from the world which they detested, the idolatrous world of the Near East. Another claim source doesn't impress me very much. Uh, Kasuta mentions it, so it's well known, but I will cite a paper from the Journal of Northwest Semitic Languages Volume 44, 2, 2019 by, I don't know how to pronounce it, C.H.G.J. Van Der Merwe, M-E-R-W-E, from South African University, Stellenbosch. And here he quotes Phoenician um, mythology, uh, which, however, is not well preserved. We don't have anything from the Phoenicians themselves. The bulk of it has been preserved in the writings of uh, Greek and Roman scholars, uh, when you look at it, uh, it it's it's totally uh, totally different. Uh, to me, it's totally different. Uh, Philo of Byblos uh, says that uh, a dark and windy air, and muddy and gloomy chaos, that were limitless and had no boundary, but then. Can Satan polite company? Uh, the wind uh, wanted to inseminate itself, um, and uh, that created a god mod, mud, liquid mixtures, cre- sowing of creations and birth of all things. And then there's something about a cosmic egg, the shape of an egg. This is something we know from Buddhist mythology. Um, very, very different to me, and, and, and I don't think that uh, it's even a cognate. So, conclusions. What about the story of Genesis and Near Eastern parallels? Well, there are parallels, but to the extent that they're being used, they're being used to differentiate. It's as if someone adopted a scientific terminology. Uh, the uh, just departed late chief rabbi of England uh, was a master in using secular terminology and his deep knowledge of the culture to explain Jewish concepts. Rabbi Jonathan Sacks was an absolute master of this but always faithful to the sources. So. It's a language you use, and especially in poetry, especially when you talk about things that it tells, not what it says, allusions to prevailing ideas are not only okay, they greatly add to the message. It does not mean that these ideas influenced or shaped the presentation, and it doesn't mean that they were in some ways reworked. What it means is that the subliminal message of the story takes care of the prevailing counter myths and leads us to the conclusion that the great author specifically wanted to make. Thank you very much colleagues and friends. As I apologized in the beginning, even these two topics took me a little longer than a podcast would usually take, but I hope you find it useful and may you leave only with blessings until the next time.